And as you do, let me remind you we're in this series right now called Awaken. And we're looking at Jesus' stories. We're actually journeying through the Gospel of John, and we're looking at these encounters, these conversations that Jesus had that John captures in the fourth Gospel. We've titled this series Awaken because the conversations, those interactions that were taking place in the first century between Jesus and those people were not just for them, but for us today. The Jesus who transformed lives in the first century continues all the way through the 21st century. And as we come to this table and as we come and worship and we remember who Jesus is, we're reminded that the life that he offers, the life that Jesus gives us, it's not just for eternity, though it's for then too. It's for life now. We believe and we stand with the words of Jesus where he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so what does it look like for us to proclaim those words and to journey with each other and with God as we understand more of what the Holy Spirit is doing in each of our lives? What does it mean for the transformation that's taking place in us today that Christ desires for us? and our families, and our community? And then how does that transform this city, this nation, and ultimately the world? And so that's the invitation that we have here today. The story that we started last week is John chapter five. If you're new or just getting started coming to Northland, as we journey through this gospel, we haven't gotten that far, so don't worry, you're not that far behind. John chapter five uh, introduces us to this incredible scene, this moment where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and he's, he's going to uh, a Jewish festival, uh, one of several that happened every year. And on his way there, he stops at this pool that's called Bethesda. At this pool, many, many people who are sick, who are suffering, who are experiencing great pain, people who are looking for healing, they gather at this pool uh, because of the superstition around it. Sort of this mythology, this idea that several times a year, the belief was that when the waters would stir, when they would bubble up, the first person to get in the water would be healed. And so uh, I love this painting by Robusti, this Venetian uh, Renaissance painter capturing uh, the amount of people, the density of people that must have gathered there. As the scripture says, multitudes of people were gathered in this space hoping for this healing. And here comes Jesus, the great healer. And he stops, he sees this man who the, the scriptures tell us for 38 years, he's not been able to walk. And Jesus heals him. And we're reminded of this incredible imagery, the word itself, Bethesda, this pool. It literally means house of mercy. What an incredible picture for Jesus on his way to the temple to stop and say, this is what church looks like. This is what a house of mercy looks like. And we talked about the many ways that this congregation on campus here, seven days a week, so many acts of, of mercy take place and healing on this property, but way more happens beyond what happens here on property. That God actually calls each of us to be these mobile temples of his mercy as we go from here back to where we do most of our lives. 
And that was our call to action. What does it look like to be recipients of God's mercy and to go and be mercy to those around us? Here, we're now picking up the story. I'm gonna teach a little bit more on that today. Pastor Matt will be back next weekend and he will unpack a little bit more. We'll, we'll take a few weeks to get through this whole story. But I wanna pick up uh, a little bit where we left off last week so it overlaps enough for us to get caught up with what was happening in this scene. If you have your scriptures, turn to John chapter five. Uh, it's also in the worship guide, the handout that you got on your way in, um, or you can follow on the screen. Let's pick up the story and see what happens. So picking up from last week, Jesus said to this man, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. So just flash back here again, we get this picture of Jesus' divinity starting to uh, come out in in a new way as he heals in mere words, this man instantly is cured. Jesus speaks and transformation takes place. We talked about how this goes all the way back to Genesis. Jesus speaking out of nothing, the cosmos and all of creation. We see here a picture of Jesus speaking and instantly this man is healed at once. And it says that this took place on the Sabbath. I mentioned last week the controversy that we would talk about today. In fact, there's two points of controversy that we're going to cover that that sort of comes into the picture here. But what I want to highlight here is this word, the law. What does that mean? What's happening here? What's the reference to the law? Was it it God's written commands the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, it was linked to that. But actually what what is being referred to here in the law are these human-made laws that were created over time by rabbis who were trying to keep the community of faith on track, doing what they're supposed to be doing, not doing what they're not supposed to be doing. So they made rules for the rules for the rules. And so in this particular case, when it says the law forbids you to carry your mat, it's actually not referencing the Decalogue, God's Ten Commandments, His written law. It's a reference to what was referred to as the Mishnah, these 39 categories of of human-made written laws, the laws on the laws on the laws that tried to police and watch over the community. But you can tell what's happening here, what was supposed to be the object actually became a distraction. What was supposed to be helpful actually got off the rails. In fact, I was thinking this week about this scene. It it doesn't take a rocket scientist to stop here for a second and, and just imagine what it must have been like. People seeing the healing, the supernatural miracle that had taken place, word must have spread quickly. A place that was already dense with people was getting even more crowded as people heard of this miracle. You can imagine not just people of faith coming to see and hear of what happened, but even irreligious people, people of no faith wanting to hear who is this Jesus, what actually happened, who was here when it happened, who can give a first-hand account, the questions, the, the gossip, the stories that must have been buzzing around that scene. But Interestingly enough, I'm sure what that crowd picked up on was a major killjoy moment here, 
right? We're reading this story and Jesus has performed this supernatural miracle, this amazing act that transcends human capacity and imagination, heals this man who is crippled for 38 years. He gets up and walks and they totally miss the point. These religious leaders come on the scene and it's a killjoy. And I got to thinking, how many of you, don't look at the person next to you, but how many of you have a killjoy person in your life? Somebody that just wants to reign on your parade whenever something good is happening, whenever you have some good news. Yeah, don't look at your neighbor. Um, whenever you're sharing something fun, they just sort of want to spoil the moment. Just be a killjoy. I was actually thinking about that this week, and I thought I'm going to make a little short list, hopefully a short list, uh, of people who are a killjoy in my life. And I kid you not, I hit a total mental block because I couldn't get past the fact that in my household, with my family, I am the one that is a killjoy on a weekly basis at my house. And so as hard as I tried to keep thinking of, no, 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 not me, Lord, who are the killjoys in my life? I was the one. In fact, what happens in my household is I am the one who has taken the responsibility, the role, nobody gave it to me, I took it upon myself, to be the keeper of the chores list. I don't know if you have somebody in your house that is that person. Often what you find with these types of people, they love to make lists of the things that need to get done. They not only take pleasure in making the list, but they get sort of a, a, a sick pleasure in, in enforcing the list, right? So I literally grabbed and took a picture of, of one of these um, off of the kitchen counter where I, the kids all know, this is, this is where the list always exists. Um, and on a Saturday morning, if they ever wake up and they come out of bed and they see me with a pencil and a piece of paper, they know exactly what's going on. Uh, Emerson, who's 16, her body posture just usually slumps you know, Wyatt, who's 10, he just disappears. He's gone. I have to go looking for him. But here's an actual, um, here's an actual snapshot of that list. It's a real list. They had to do this on Thursday. I not only make the list, I come and check on the work that they did. You can see, again, I didn't edit this, but uh, number one on Wyatt's list, you can put two and two together. We have a big dog, a, a big black lab. And uh, before I go and mow the yard, I want certain deposits, you know, to uh, be picked up out of the yard. There's always negotiations. How long is the list? He's usually trying to trade number one for something else on Emerson's list, right? I mean, there's all kinds of things going on here. And this is just a sample, right? I mean, I have a spreadsheet that I pull from with categories. Sometimes they're colored, you know? I mean, I, I not only love the list, I, I love enforcing it. Well, in a very small way, this is a picture of what was happening in this scene. Here comes these religious leaders who are witnesses. They see the evidence of this changed life. And instead of celebrating it, they start looking at the lists. What went wrong here? Who's responsible? Who broke some rule? And they not only had the list in their back pocket, they loved to enforce it on others. And it was a killjoy for this scene. Let's keep going and see what happens. But he replied, and the he there is the man, he's replying, the, the man that was healed is replying to the religious leaders. The man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? 
The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So again, imagine this scene here. Imagine what this man is experiencing for the first time in his life, in muscle, in tendons, in tissue, in bone, synapses are firing, electricity is firing through his body like he never experienced before. He's overwhelmed even by just the physical sensation of that healing. But on top of that, he's the most popular guy around right now. People want to know all the details of what happened. And then on top of that, there's this pressure from these, these watchdogs, sort of the police, the, the hallway monitors of religiosity, who were coming around not to celebrate this life, this change, this transformation, but to put pressure on him around who did this and who, who told you that you could pick up your mat and walk. That was a work that was very uh, linearly, rigidly defined as breaking the Sabbath according to those man-made laws that they had created. And it says Jesus came back and he sees them and he says, stop sinning, something may, worse may happen to you. What's Jesus saying? Is, do we, can we sort of draw that there's something going on sinfully in this, in this man's lives? We don't know. Biblical scholars like to debate sort of maybe the intent behind what Jesus was saying. But in most, uh, most likely what Jesus was simply doing is saying, hey, stop sinning. There, there are, uh, there's, when you sin, you're going to pay the price. There's a cause and effect. You reap what you sow. He's just providing good counsel, good wisdom here. And it says the man then went away, told the Jewish leaders, is he throwing Jesus under the bus here? Is he ratting him out? Most likely not. He is simply just overwhelmed by the moment. And in addition to all that, with the controversy that was looming around the breaking of the Sabbath, these religious leaders that were saying in their minds that Jesus broke one of these laws by healing on the Sabbath, they're also saying that this man, by picking up his mat, was doing labor, doing work, and carrying it from one point to the other. And he was breaking a command, a law. And so there's all this controversy looming. What is even at a higher stake here is that to break a Sabbath law during that time period often resulted in death by stoning. So it's a big deal what's happening. But that's only half of it. The temperature actually gets turned up and the controversy gets even greater. This is what it says. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, 
the Son also does. Jesus is holding nothing back. The implications here are huge. He's talking about his divinity, being equal, being one with God the Father. In fact, the controversy that started with just some verbal persecution, now there's physical threats. This is the first of 11 references in the Gospel of John where these religious leaders begin to plot on how to kill Jesus. That's how serious this action, these words were, where Jesus is claiming to being equal, to being one with God. Last week we talked about several big theological words, these big constructs that help us understand who Jesus is, exactly what he's communicating. That he's not just a good teacher, He's not just somebody who's doing some good works. In fact, we looked at a few of these words that reflect on the very nature of of Christ's divinity, his omniscience, the way that he could see people. He saw that 38-year-old man, the scripture says that he knew him. We've looked back at scriptures that reference Jesus knowing before the foundation of the world, he knew that man, he knew and knows each of us. He's all-knowing. Jesus is omnipotent, his power to heal, to go beyond what seems humanly capable. He's omnibenevolent, this, I, this truth that he's not just good sometimes, that Jesus is good all the time for all of eternity. And here we come to this other word that's a great descriptive of what Jesus is saying here, his sovereignty, his supreme power his divinity, his equality, his oneness with God. There's a great scripture later in the New Testament in Colossians where the apostle Paul writes this and it's an incredible picture. These words are so powerful and rich in describing who Jesus is and what he was communicating to them. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. In other words, Jesus never sleeps or slumbers. He may have done that while he took on human form here. But this scripture reminds us in how he has the power, the sovereign responsibility of holding both the micro and the macro, from the biological to the cosmos, he holds everything together. If Jesus were to rest, even for a second, everything would come undone. And so he's expressing here his divinity. He is rocking their theological world. But what I really wanna pay attention to here is, is the misunderstanding, the tension, the misinformation that exists around a topic that we still struggle to understand today. It's the topic of Sabbath. Why Sabbath? Why all this misunderstanding then? Why do we still misunderstand it today? It's easy to harp and bash these religious leaders as as if they're the only ones that aren't getting it right. But if we're honest with ourselves, we can easily recall all the ways that this command of God's to keep the Sabbath is one that we often dismiss or we try to spin or justify or excuse ourselves from actually doing it. And what's at stake is far beyond our health. It would be easy to do a sermon here and and spend the next few minutes just talking about why keeping Sabbath is good for us 
as humans. And there would be a long list. Our mental health, we need a rest. We need to take a break one day a week out of six. We need that for physical healing, for restoration, for relationships, for reprioritizing, re-energizing, resting and recouping and preparing for the week ahead. All of those things would be true, especially in a 24-7 world where we're always plugged in, always connected, always uh, ready to do something else instead of stopping. It would be true that we could spend the whole afternoon talking about that. But I don't think that would motivate anybody. Or it would motivate very few and it may not last long because many of us, when it comes to not keeping the Sabbath, we actually do it sort of as an excuse. We justify that we're, we're working harder, working longer for others. We're willing to sacrifice, so to speak, and, and, and just work through seven days and just keep grinding it out. What's at stake though is not merely our health as individuals or even as a community. What's at stake is the identity of God and what he communicates about himself in keeping the Sabbath. So here's what I wanna do. We're gonna cover just very quickly sort of some, some definition and, and get to understanding what Sabbath is. But I really wanna to get to the why. So let's take a look real quick. You probably already know this, but, but keeping the Sabbath is the fourth commandment. It's not just a good idea. It's not just a suggestion. It's literally the fourth commandment given to Moses. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What does that word mean, Sabbath? It literally from the Hebrew translates to stop, to desist, to cease, to stop all ordinary work. Whatever you are normally doing, stop doing it. I was actually... Um, reading this week uh, an account. I started last night, actually, I was falling asleep, and I, I just purchased this book, uh, a biography on Benjamin Franklin. And, and just curious, just interested, ever since Hamilton came out, I just, I, I read every biography on all those guys, and Benjamin Franklin was next on my list. And already, early in the pages, as I'm reading, jumps out that this whole idea of keeping the Sabbath was not just something that was misunderstood in the early church, not even just something misunderstood today. In the 1600s, this was actually a huge problem. I came across this, I highlighted it. Benjamin Franklin's father, in his community, he was known as a tithing man. Now, I had never heard this word before. How many of you ever have heard the word tithing man? I had to look it up. There's several words I'm about to read to you that's old English uh, that I'll have to explain. But here's what a tithing man was. This is what Benjamin Franklin's father did in his church community. The name of tithing man, it means the moral marshals whose job it was to enforce attendance and attention at Sunday services. Can you, I mean, think about that for a second. This guy, he's not only counting roll, he's actually looking out to monitor and marshal who's paying attention and who's not paying attention. But it goes on, it's more than that. Uh, he did this at Sunday services and his job was to keep an eye out for the night walkers, tipplers, and Sabbath breakers. Again, I had to look up some of this stuff. Night walkers. Some of us know what that means, right? Just people who are out at night, up to no good, probably end up um, committing a crime. That's what a night walker is. Tippler, 
new to me, um, but someone who's prone to drunkenness, um, that would be part of what he is, he's a moral marshal to uh, monitor, but it includes the Sabbath breakers. What an interesting picture, how over the centuries, we see the ways that we often miss the point of the Sabbath. Even, let's look at a couple other bullet points. In Jesus' time, the Sabbath was observed Friday evening to Saturday evening. Even today, people ask, and there's debate, shouldn't we be observing the Sabbath today the way that Jesus did, Friday evening to Saturday evening? I grew up in a church tradition where it was always Sundays. The point here is God's command, that fourth command, does not tell us what day of the week we should observe the Sabbath. The principle is to observe the Sabbath, to keep it holy. Why? What's the point here? I want to look at two scriptures from the Old Testament. We're going to go old school just for a couple minutes. And as I was preparing for this weekend, I was blown away. Not so much just about what this speaks to us in terms of what the Sabbath means, but what it speaks about who God is. So we're going to look at a quick text from Exodus and a quick text from Deuteronomy. Two accounts where God himself literally uses the words, this is why. And so we're going to get the motivation, the why, right behind it. In Exodus, the first one, it says this, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. The second account, nearly identical only a couple nuances. In fact, it's only towards the end where there's a little bit more detail and description. Um, this includes your oxen and donkeys and other livestock and any, uh, any foreigners living among you, all your male and female servants must rest as you do. Very nearly identical accounts where God is literally speaking to us as people. Why? The, the what behind the Sabbath. But check out the why. These next two scriptures are unbelievable and what it says about God. It says in the first account, for in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. In this first account, the reason we're told to keep the Sabbath, the why that's literally stated there, is because God created and labored intensely for six days. And then he rested He took time to see what he had done, celebrated, observed, noted that it was good. The picture we have here is an amazing snapshot of a God that worked hard. But it's also a picture of a God who played hard. The picture we have here in creation is simply this, no one, should ever outwork Christians. We, of all people, should be the hardest workers in businesses, in our neighborhoods. We should be the best, hardest working students, the best volunteers, the best moms and dads and kids. We should work so hard that no one ever outworks us. Why? Because we have a picture of a God that models what it means to create and to work hard. But we also should never, ever 
let anyone outplay us as Christians. We have a picture of a God who not only labored intensively, he rested and celebrated intensely. There's a story, again, a a book I had just finished before starting this Benjamin Franklin biography uh, called Pioneers uh, by David McCullough, I think. And, And incredible stories of those pioneers that packed up their wagons and went out west uh, to resettle and to, to uh, take the U.S. across all those boundaries. And there's a story of a group of families that got together, they packed their wagons, they made all the preparation, they knew that they had somewhere between 30 and 40 days uh, before getting to their destination. Winter was gonna be approaching, so they were having to put all those things together. They set out, they weren't very far into the journey before they began to realize that the snow was gonna be coming sooner than expected, and there began a debate among the families as to whether or not they should stop and observe the Sabbath and rest, or they should just press through and work through those, those day, the seventh day. And so the debate got intense and they finally had to agree to disagree and part ways. And one group decided we cannot, uh, we cannot risk what is at stake. We're just gonna plow ahead. And the other group, the families decided, no, we're gonna continue every seventh day to stop and rest. And what they did is they found at the end, you can already probably imagine what happens here. The, f- the families that got there first were the ones who took the time to stop and feast together and sing and dance and tell stories of things that they had done as families together in the past and to dream together of the things they looked forward to doing in the future. They were the ones that got there first. They were more rested, more ready, more energized and and worked even more intensely for what was ahead. And you've probably heard a lot of stories like that. There's a fast food company that closes, sells chicken sandwiches one day a week, shut the doors, why? To stop the ordinary work, not just for themselves, but to not put others in that situation where they're having to labor and they defy the odds. It does not make economic sense. In fact, all the other businesses that are open seven days a week just sit around scratching their heads. How is this working? It's a biblical principle. But let's look at the next one. The next account says that the other reason, the other why that God gives is that you were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out with his strong and powerful arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to rest on the Sabbath day. What an incredible picture that God would take time to draw our attention to, that the other reason that we observe the Sabbath is because the Israelites, if you think back to the Old Testament, for 400 years, they had no sick days, no vacations, no personal days, no holidays, 400 years of no Sabbath, under the tyranny of Pharaoh. They were instruments. They were hands, equipment to build monuments, to build these pyramids. And they were enslaved for 400 years. And God says, do not ever go back to that. 
I have redeemed you. Whenever we decide to just work through that seventh day, we're actually embracing a 24-7 cultural idea instead of God's command of what is a 24-6 picture that he tells us is far better because it reflects who he is, who we are as image bearers of our creator. Every time we want to work through that seventh day, we're embracing this bondage to punch that clock and to work through and grind through believing that that's gonna serve us and our community best. And it defies who God says he is and what he invites us into as a people. So here's the picture. What does it mean for us to be 24-7 instead of 24-6? It means I do more. I run harder. I grip tighter. I'm on fumes, I hoard, I keep, I skip a meal, more chores. I enslave myself, the focus is on me. The 24-6 picture is we stop, we breathe, we trust, we laugh, we are refilled, we give away, we feast, we dance. Chores, what chores? We are free, the focus on we in Christ. So the challenge for us today is to get back to the rhythm that God intends for us in observing and keeping this day holy, whatever day that might be. Today might be your Sabbath. You can imagine um, the conversations that were around my house this week. It's, I mean, preaching a sermon on Sabbath is, is, it does some things to our household. It does some things to my chores list, frankly. It took a little bit of my joy away, frankly. We had some conversations this week talking about Sabbath and what that word meant, how it reflected our creator, why it's so important for us to play and celebrate have our favorite meal during that time together to connect with the people that we love, our friends, our family. You can imagine my 10-year-old son was doing the math and he's like, if it's so good to take one day off a week, why not five? I mean, and we talked about that. Clearly from these two accounts, Exodus and Deuteronomy, these are not invitations to be lazy, to to kick up our feet, We have a picture of a God that worked hard. We should be the hardest workers anywhere, everywhere. But we should never forget what Eugene Peterson describes as he writes and describes this Exodus and Deuteronomy account. He says, we are not only a people of prey, but we are a people of play. Let us never forget that, the joy that God has and invites us into. In fact, I'm gonna invite the worship team out and as we were brainstorming this week and we talked about coming to this table with joy, we talked about the implications of sort of reverse engineering this service where we're starting and remembering his death but it didn't stop there. It's the life that Jesus offered. And we were brainstorming how do, what's the best way to close this service? And the exclamation mark for us just felt like there's no way we could leave here without some play. There's no way we could leave here without celebrating with great joy who God is, who we are in his image. And we began to talk about songs 
that um, to us just represented this great joyful proclamation in lyrics and in melody, the joy of who Jesus is coming here on earth to redeem us. And we talked about how, what a shame it is that there are some songs that we only sing in December. Why is that? When they're so full of joy and they could be sung year round to remind us of the great joy that we have, not just in Jesus who came as a babe in a manger, but as you hear these lyrics and sing these lyrics, and I knew in advance we were gonna sing these songs. I've been listening to them all week. They are now my new favorite worship songs. And they used to not be in my category of worship music. They used to just be in the category of Christmas songs that we would sing around Christmas. But I wanna invite you to sing them as great declarations of joy of what Jesus is reminding us today. In fact, in just a, a little bit after we sing, um, the students are gonna come up and, and I'm excited to commission them. They're going on a trip. I'm gonna invite the students to come up here and if you wanna join them, these are fun songs. These are expressions and a picture of what it means for us to respond to this God who is joy. So would you stand and let's sing these songs together. <laughs> 